I'll tell you something funny about this collection. The first title was Too Jewish. Oh, my goodness. Really? Don't you think the stories are really too Jewish? Shalom, and welcome to the Too Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Ari Harrow, former chief of staff to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and author of My Brother's Keeper, Netanyahu, Obama, and the Year of Terror and Conflict that Changed the Middle East Forever. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish Radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. After I discussed the conservative Jewish movement selling its West Coast headquarters in Bel Air, California, known as American Jewish University, to the Reform Synagogue next door, Stephen S. Wise Temple, back on last week's Two Jewish show, a friend and fellow radio guy, Charles Heller, suggested I explain a bit more about Reform and conservative Judaism, the differences, and, oh, I guess where they are right now in America. That is a topic I have explored from time to time. Okay, we've explored it many times over the years here on Two Jewish, but I know things change. And unfortunately, not everybody who listens to Two Jewish retains an encyclopedic memory of everything Rabbi Kohan has ever chatted about over the 21 years that Two Jewish has been on the air. Sadly, not everyone goes back and listens religiously to the 1,100 and more Two Jewish podcasts available to stream on our TwoJewishRadio.com website or the 500 or so available podcasts of our past shows on iTunes or Podbean. So we will start out this morning and go on for a couple of weeks explaining the non-Orthodox Jewish movements, particularly Reform and Conservative Judaism, where they came from, how they are doing in today's American Jewish world. First, a little bit about my own bona fides. I grew up both in the conservative and reform movements as a child and teenager. My grandfather was a leader of the reform movement, a rabbi, and he taught its rabbis for many decades, while my dad was a chazan, a cantor in the conservative movement, and then in a prominent reform congregation. I attended both conservative and reform synagogues and religious schools and youth groups and Israel programs. When I started out as a cantor professionally at the ripe old age of 17 years old, I first served Reform Congregation and then conservative ones, but my first full-time cantorial job for a couple of years was in a conservative congregation, a large one, followed by five years at a Reform Congregation. I was installed in the conservative movement's Cantor's Assembly as a member back when I was all of 26 years old. I still remain a member today. At age 30, I went back to seminary and trained as a reform rabbi at Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem, then Los Angeles, then Cincinnati, and I have been an ordained reform rabbi, well, since HUC, Hebrew Union College, ordained me back in 1995. So, technically, I am a conservative cantor and a reform rabbi. 
and if not uniquely qualified as at least a knowledgeable observer and participant in both movements, I sure have had extensive experience of liberal Judaism, that is, non-Orthodox Judaism right here in America, in various parts of it, too. A few important salient facts about liberal Judaism. First of all, liberal Judaism doesn't mean that people are politically liberal. It just means that they don't believe that in order to be a religious practicing Jew, you must follow all of Jewish law, halacha, as Orthodox Judaism interprets it. Second, while for quite a while, well over a century, being reformer conservative was an important distinction in America, that has certainly changed dramatically over the past 30 years, but especially so over the last 20 and 10 years even, movement affiliation with conservative synagogues, and to a lesser degree with reform synagogues, well, that's generally in decline. And self-identification as, I am a conservative Jew, or I am a reform Jew, yeah, those identities have waned as well. If you're not an Orthodox Jew, and the vast majority of American Jews are not Orthodox, and have no intention of ever being Orthodox, well, you are now very likely to say something like, I'm Jewish, or just Jewish, or perhaps I'm Reformed, but I like the traditional service at this nearby congregation, or perhaps I grew up conservative, but now I'm kind of Reconstructionist or Renewal, or I went to a Reform camp, and now I, you know, I do the holidays, or even I really like the music at that temple. I don't care whether it's part of a national movement or not. Okay. If you've got all that in mind, I'll start this multi-part series with a short historical note. The first modern movement in American Judaism was Reform Judaism. It came over from Germany early in the 19th century, more than 200 years ago, and by a little bit past the middle of the 1800s, all the major institutions of Reform Judaism in America were firmly in place. The Reform Movement's goal was to be the principal form of Judaism in America. It was all about being American Judaism, not specifically Reform, since there was very little organized Jewish communal religious life that needed reforming. Conservative Judaism got started here as a reaction against what was viewed by some rabbis and some Jews as a too modern and too Americanized version of Judaism. Conservative movement institutions got going maybe 30 years after the reform movements did. Back in the late 19th century, about 130 years ago or so, the reform movement evolved into classical reform Judaism, which included prayer services primarily conducted in English with just a sprinkling of Hebrew, quite formal choral music, and a long rabbi's sermon, and a service that always had um, decorum, that is, everybody dressed well and sat quietly and reverently. The Torah was read on Friday nights. There was no particular adherence to keeping kosher. The conservative movement, in distinction, had a nearly all-Hebrew service chanted by a cantor. Torah reading on Saturday morning. Kosher kitchens in their synagogues. The main similarity was probably that in both reforming conservative synagogues, men and women sat together, while in orthodox synagogues they were supposed to sit apart, in separate and not-so-equal sections. Now, that form of worship, that is, classical reform Judaism, lasted all the way up to the 1960s, like 70 years, 
even the early 70s for most Reformed Jews. It changed quite dramatically then and has continued to evolve ever since. Next week, I'll talk about the 20th century rise and 21st century decline of Reformed Judaism and the concomitant rise and, frankly, collapse of conservative Judaism in mostly the same time periods as well. And, of course, what the main differences and similarities are today between conservative and Reformed Judaism. To play us in this morning, here's a classical piece of Reformed Jewish music from the days of, well, classical Reformed Judaism. This is Louis Lewandowski's Lechadodi, the verses were composed by Abraham Binder, as sung by a choir in Haifa, Israel. That was Lechadodi from the Shabbat liturgy from the classical reform setting by Louis Lewandowski and Abraham Binder. 
Our guest on Two Jewish this morning, Ari Harrow, was chief of staff to Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu 10 years ago, back in 2014, during, well, an earlier major Gaza war. He explains both how this Hamas war is similar and quite different, and the dynamics of it all from a unique insider's perspective. Find out, well, all about it when we come back in just a moment here on Two Jewish. We are delighted to welcome to Two Jewish our guest this morning, uh, speaking to us from Israel. Ari Harrow is a former chief of staff for Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu. Grew up in America till he was, I don't know, 11 years old or so. His family made Aliyah, served with great distinction in the IDF and in a number of other areas of Israeli life. His new book is called My Brother's Keeper, Netanyahu, Obama, the Year of Terror and Conflict that Changed the Middle East Forever. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Good morning and thank you for having me. Boy, it would feel like deja vu all over again with Gaza. It must feel a little bit like that to you. Tell us what prompted writing this book now and and how it relates. Well, there's no question that it does feel like deja vu all over again. I can tell you, though, that the timing was definitely not intentional. Um, I started writing the book a couple years ago and finished the the writing uh, about a year ago. As you can imagine, it takes time to go through publishing and and printing, etc., and it is now going to be released in, in, the, in the coming weeks. But lo and behold, on October 7th, the world changed, and, and it definitely changed for us here in Israel. And we found ourselves, obviously, with a different reality. The, the horrendous, horrendous massacre that took place on October 7th is something that's unprecedented in the history of Israel. But at the same time, some of the dilemmas some of the challenges in dealing with Hamas and dealing with Gaza were extremely familiar to me from when I was chief of staff during the Gaza incursion in 2014. It has felt that each time Israel fought Hamas in Gaza, there were similarities and differences. One of the differences was Hamas seemed better prepared each time. We'll come much more deeply into the 2014 experience. What was missed so badly this time? That's a great question, and I think it's going to take quite some time for the Israeli authorities and for our our military and intelligence services to really answer that question. The failures were far and wide, and it really is going to take a tremendous amount of reckoning to properly analyze and identify why so much was missed. I think that the threat was obvious to everyone. The fact that they were building up capabilities was obvious to everyone. The fact that they had developed a vast expansive terror tunnel infrastructure in Gaza everybody was aware of and ultimately the offensive nature of what happened on October 7th and the ease with which they were able to bypass certain uh, safeguards and penetrate the country etc is just extremely difficult to stomach to this day and can't really give you a great answer for that I think that these are some of the questions that we're going to be facing here in Israel and that the leadership can be facing for the you know months and years to come. We will talk much more with Ari Harrow about uh, Israel and Gaza and his new book, My Brother's Keeper, Netanyahu, Obama, The Year of Terror and Conflict That Changed the Middle East Forever. Brand new book. We come back in a moment here on To Jewish. 
Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson in the Catalina foothills, celebrates a fabulous array of services, classes, and events this winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person. Call 520-276-5675. Religious school is available for religious school age children or grandchildren. Join us in our fabulous Hebrew school, Barnbot Mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation and teen programs all in a fun relaxed setting with great jewish learning go to baitsimchatucson.org to sign up now baitsimcha services classes and events are open to everyone in-person Friday night services are at 6.30 p.m., followed by a delicious Oneg Shabbat and homemade challah every week. Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. Shabbat morning services, and then a delicious kiddush with more homemade challah and lots to drink. All with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, leading them. You can also come on our Facebook page, Beit Simcha Tucson, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson, our Adult Education Academy classes, which are extensive, are live and on Zoom. You can access those through the website, baitsimchatucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org. You can also call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, at Beit Simcha, the fastest-growing Jewish congregation in all of southern Arizona. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or a criticism, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O JewishRadio18 at gmail. Or visit our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear nearly all past and present shows through the website. Streaming us from there or downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store is very popular Jewish podcasts. Top 10 in North America, according to Moment Magazine, over 200,000 downloads on Podbean and on Spotify, too. Post a rating, review 2Jewish wherever you listen to us. Those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520 
888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. Tom, uh, Yemen has been much in the news and the Houthis there because of the threat that it has posed, uh, not just sending rockets towards Israel, but more importantly, trying to close the straits that lead to the Suez Canal. And I'm wondering what's going on behind the scenes diplomatically that we don't really read about. Yeah, well, you raise a hugely complicated and multifaceted subject, which we can't begin to cover fully in the next few minutes. But but we will we'll, endeavor. We'll, we'll cover a little bit. So first of all, who are the Houthis? They're a group of rebels in Yemen who don't like the government. Yemen has been chronically unstable. I mean, that's true of many Arab countries, but it's especially true of Yemen. And it's especially true since They got rid of their huge and ancient Jewish community, which was not powerful in the sense of political clout or leadership, but it was stabilizing because it was, like we talked about last week, very traditional. Right. And very predictable. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if you know Yemenite Jews, you know there's such a strong and deep tradition. So 99.9% of Yemenite Jews have left, not necessarily by choice. Most of them went to Israel in two major operations, two major airlifts. Was it flying carpet or something? I can't remember. One was like near the beginning of Israeli statehood, and one was much more recent. But anyway, they're gone. And Yemen has been the scene of civil wars and great instability. And these Houthis are backed by, supported by, directed by Iran. So this is part of the much bigger picture we've discussed before on this show, which is Shia versus Sunni. And the leaders or self-proclaimed leaders of the Shia world are the Iranis. Not everybody loves the Iranis. Certainly a lot of Sunni dislike them intensely, but they are definitely the state sponsor of, and the largest probably financial sponsor, but not the only one of these Houthis. So the Houthis pose a danger to world stability because they attack ships in the Red Sea that have any vague connection to Israel that might be sailing to or from Israel or carrying Israeli-made goods or whatever. Any The remotest connection to Israel. And one wonders how they get this intelligence. Like, how do they know which ship is carrying what? That's got to right. be from Iran. So it's not on their own. And... For a lot of countries that depend on the Suez Canal for much of their trade, and that's much of Northern Europe, including some of our closest allies like the UK, France, and Germany, this poses a mortal threat of raising prices, of increasing shipping times from three weeks to three months. I mean, it's a huge difference if, yeah. you, have to, if you have to go around... All the way around Africa. The Cape get... of Good Hope. Yeah. Right? So there is 
a semi-secret, not entirely transparent agreement to take joint action against the Houthis in this specific area, not in Yemen, but in the Red Sea, to protect global shipping lanes. And that's the major maritime countries and, frankly, the major NATO countries. It's not all of NATO as an organization, because then you'd have to get a yes vote from Hungary. Right. But it's the, it's the countries that really matter. And So we're talking about the U.S., the U.K., France. You can't pin me down on this. Italy, okay. Sorry. I'm not saying anything. That's fine. Italy? Are you kidding? Well, I'm sorry. Please. I just thought I'd throw it in there. I know they have ships. That's... <laughs> Okay, uh, I'm not pinning you down. So, and that's to try to keep the shipping lanes open, right? I mean, yeah. something as yeah, basic yeah. as that. Yeah. No, it has nothing to do with the internal situation in Yemen or with uh, the Houthis allegedly launching drone attacks against a lot. It 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 has to do with protecting global shipping, which has always been what's called a casus belli in terms of declaring war, like a a, a reason for reason. going to war, right? to declare war is protecting global shipping. That's all. That's long, centuries-old precedent for this. It, it is. When we attacked the Barbary pirates when you, we were a brand new country. Yeah, the very fir- from, the, from the shores of Tripoli, right? In, yeah. in the late 18th century. And there's a monument to that in Malta, believe it or not. I've seen it, actually. I've, I've, I've actually seen that. It's kind of crazy. Right. Um, well, we're still doing it, and it does raise questions as to why they took this chance, uh, because it undoubtedly is bringing some tremendous power to bear against what they're trying to do. Tom, thanks so much. We will talk next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by Two Jewish as a public service. <laughs> Max is crossing the street one day when he's hit by a bus. Immediately, he's rushed to the hospital, put in intensive care. A few days later, Harry, his best friend, visits him. How are things, Max? Harry asks. Not good, says Max. My wife Leah visits me three times a day. What's so bad about that, says Harry? Well, every time she comes, says Max, she sits at my bedside and reads to me. What's bad about that? What does she read? asks Harry. My life insurance policy, says Max. That was the old Jewish joke of the week special feature of Two Jewish. Just for you, you should live and be well. And now a word of Torah. This week we read the wonderful portion of Bishalach, the great tale of the exodus from Egypt. The story is familiar from Bible classes, sermons, Passover seders, movies, even cartoons. The Israelites, under the leadership of Moses, with help from his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam, have been liberated from Egyptian slavery. God has sent the ten plagues to destroy the will of the oppressors, and now our people escape Egypt after 400 years of slavery, carrying bundles of clothing, some unleavened bread baked in haste, a few trinkets of gold and silver borrowed from their former slavers. The Israelites approach the sea, some say the Red Sea, some say the Sea of Reeds, and Pharaoh has a change of heart and mind. He decides cruelly to follow the Israelites with his chariot army, re-enslave them. Stuck on the shore of the sea between the oncoming enemy and the deep waters, God miraculously saves the Israelites by dividing the sea, 
allowing them to cross on dry land with the waters closing behind them to destroy their Egyptian pursuers. As they look back on the now unparted waters, the Israelites celebrate. They sing a great song. Who is like you, God, among the gods that are worshipped? Who is like you, adorned in holiness, awesome in praise, doer of wonders? That song is part of every evening and morning service in Judaism, the Michamocha. It is often sung in an upbeat, joyous, energized way. For in that very moment, our people fully comprehended the miraculous saving power of God, the amazing ability to be redeemed from death and destruction. While it doesn't always turn out that way, it does remind us that in Jewish belief, God can do anything and has done so for our people at rare and remarkable times. That's not something to count on in daily life. Although David Ben-Gurion, the founding prime minister of Israel, the real father of the country, memorably said, in Israel, in order to be a realist, you must believe in miracles. That capacity is actualized in this portion, demonstrating that freedom can come even to the most downtrodden, enslaved people. Ben-Gurion also said, Anyone who doesn't believe you can't change history has never written his memoirs. One of the great aspects of the portion of Bishalach is that as soon as the story of the Exodus and the crossing of the sea is told in prose, there's an immediate reinterpretation into poetry. And we have been reinterpreting this fantastic tale, well, ever since. We'll do that again, not only this Shabbat, but again on Passover, Pesach. It's all very close to the heart of Judaism and Jewish life. It's also a wonderful lesson that has been taken to heart by nearly every liberation movement since the Exodus over 3,000 years ago. No matter how dark the prospects for freedom may seem sometimes, often, God can make it possible for slaves to become free. In the same way, God can make it possible for any of us to free ourselves from the bonds imposed upon us by others and reach a time of true freedom and celebration. When we come back on Two Jewish in a Moment, our guest Ari Harrow, former chief of staff to Bibi Netanyahu, author of the new book, My Brother's Keeper, Netanyahu, Obama, and the Year of Terror and Conflict that Changed the Middle East Forever tells us how the U.S.-Israel relationship played a huge part in the Gaza War back in 2014 and how it continues to play a central role today. He'll also explain what the relationship between Barack Obama and Bibi Netanyahu was like and where it went so wrong. Find out all about that when Ari Harrow rejoins us in a moment on Too Jewish. We continue with our Too Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. As hard fighting continues in central and southern Gaza and desperation grows about the fate of the 130 Israeli hostages still held by the Hamas Palestinian terrorists, reports confirm that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu unilaterally delayed and backtracked on agreed-upon outlines for the release of hostages, all without consulting his own wartime cabinet. In the past week, the political leadership in Israel discussed potential conditions for a new and proactive negotiation that would lead to a hostage deal. The negotiations were to be pushed forward by a mediator. However, Netanyahu then delayed the talks and increased the demands that had been agreed upon already with his own war cabinet. 
Discussions over the hostage release negotiations were held with Israeli political leaders, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant and Ministers Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot. These discussions reached agreed-upon conditions to guide the negotiations in order to lead to a deal with Hamas and get the hostages home, finally, after well over a hundred days. However, a few days after the conclusion of the discussions in the War Cabinet and their agreement on Israel's position for negotiation, Netanyahu delayed the negotiations and increased the Israeli demands, all without coordinating with the ministers of his own cabinet. According to reports, the ministers involved in the discussions found out about it after the fact and confronted the prime minister, expressing their anger. Sources within the government say Netanyahu is missing out on an opportunity to advance a hostage release deal. Opposition party Yesha Tid leader Yair Lapid said, The reports about the defense minister's separation from the security decisions affecting the continuation of the fighting and the lives of the hostages are further evidence that Israel has an incompetent prime minister with an incompetent government. Israel needs a change now. The Gaza War has had an impact on the world of sports, too. The International Ice Hockey Federation reversed its decision to ban Israel from a world championship in Bulgaria last week. The Hockey Federation announced it will have the safety and security support needed to allow Israel to take part in the tournament, which brings together the under-20-year-old teams of six countries and starts January 22nd. The ban was not the first time Jewish or Israeli athletes have been penalized as fallout from the Israel-Hamas war. It sparked international backlash this time. Israel won the silver medal in its hockey division at last year's tournament, was originally supposed to host a portion of the competition this year. Following Hamas's brutal, terrible invasion of Israel October 7th and the ensuing war, the games were moved to Bulgaria. Last week, the Hockey Federation took matters a step further, announcing that due to concerns over the safety and security of all participants in the championships, Israel would be excluded from the Federation's competitions for the time being. The Professional National Hockey League weighed into the controversy, saying it had significant concerns about the International Hockey Federation's decision, adding that we also have been assured that the decision is not intended to be a sanction against the Israeli Federation, but... That did not assuage Israeli concerns. Michael Horowitz, CEO of the Ice Hockey Federation of Israel, said his association was informed of the ban 24 hours before it was publicly announced. Horowitz said Israel accepted the IIHF's decision to move part of the tournament out of Israel because of the war, but that its removal of Israel from the tournament was totally unacceptable. We see this as discriminatory and against the Olympic Charter. It will not be accepted by Israel, said Horowitz. There was no attempt to take the risk assessment and together with us or on their part, find solutions. Paul Scheinman, a Canadian-Israeli and the Israeli Hockey Federation's founder, slammed the removal of Israel from the tournament. He said that the ban on the heels of the October 7th attack makes Israelis victims twice over. Israel's sportsmen and women deserve the support and embrace of their friends in the international hockey world, not to be excluded. Israeli officials were not the only ones who protested. An editorial in the Toronto Sun, January 12th, called the ban spineless, a shameful act of cowardice. 
The piece argued that the decision set a dangerous precedent for Israel's participation in future international sports tournaments, including the 2024 Paris Olympics, and it referenced the 1972 Munich Olympic massacre, when 11 members of Israel's Olympic delegation were murdered by Palestinian and other terrorists at the Munich Games. Fast forward to 2024, and Israelis are being punished for defending themselves again against Palestinian terrorists, the editorial said. Five days later, the International Ice Hockey Federation reversed course, lifting the ban on Israel. Federation said it would continue to review Israel's participation in upcoming international tournaments on a case-by-case basis. Oi. And an Israeli who plays for a top Turkish soccer team was detained by police and suspended from his squad after displaying a message marking the passage of a hundred days since the brutalities of October 7th. Sagiv Yechezkel, 28 years old, who played for the top-tier Antalya Sports Club, wrote 100 days and October 7th on a bandage on his left wrist at a game last week, accompanied by a Star of David, referring to the day when Hamas Palestinian terrorists brutally attacked Israel, killing, raping, wounding thousands, and taking hundreds of hostages. The soccer player showed the message to the camera after he scored a goal. Pro-Palestinian sentiment is widespread in Turkey. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan referred to Hamas as a liberation group following the brutalities of October 7th. After the game, Yechezko was detained by Turkish authorities for instigating hatred and enmity among the public, the country's justice minister said. Antalya Spor's president said Yechezko insulted the values of Turkey. The team said it will release him from his contract. Yechezko was held for 10 hours and released after questioning by police and court officials. Soccer player told police he was not pro-war. He said, I want this 100-day process to come to an end. I want the war to end. I have never engaged in anything related to politics since my arrival. I have never disrespected anyone since the day I arrived. After his release, Yechezko returned to Israel, where he was met by fans who cheered and waved Israeli flags to him. In Israel, his gesture is widely interpreted as a call for the release of the hostages brutally taken captive by the evil Palestinian terrorists of Hamas on October 7th, a hundred of whom and more remain in Gaza. Yechezkel, who was wrapped in an Israeli flag upon descending from the plane, reinforced that sentiment. This was the hardest day of my life, but we will be strong, he said. According to Israeli publications, it is most important that our hostages return, that our heroic soldiers stay healthy, and that the wounded heal. It is most important that the nation of Israel lives. Israeli officials slammed Turkey over the detention of Yechezkel. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant called Turkey the executive arm of Hamas, while Israeli Foreign Minister Israel Katz called Turkey a dark dictatorship, which works against humanitarian values and the values of sports. Whoever arrests a football player for a show of solidarity with 136 captives who are held for more than 100 days by terrorists of a murderous Palestinian terrorist organization represents a culture of murder and hate, Katz said. Yechezkel is just the latest in a string of athletes who have been caught in the storm of the Israel-Hamas war and its ripples everywhere around the world. Last week, Jewish South African cricket player David Teeger was removed as captain of his country's under-19 national team. They said there was a potential for anti-Israel protests against him. And that's the two Jewish news of Jews round the world. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation 
known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen. 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, Our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome back to Two Jewish, our guest this morning. Ari Harrow is a former chief of staff to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He's the author of the new book, My Brother's Keeper, Netanyahu Obama and the Year of Terror and Conflict that Changed the Middle East Forever. I'd like to kind of jump right into the book. You said you started writing it a couple of years ago. Obviously, these events are now uh, almost a decade gone. There's some, they've always impressed me, although extraordinarily different backgrounds, Obama and Netanyahu, both very gifted politicians. Tell me about your experience in this very complicated set of circumstances. I, I remember very clearly, and uh, I, I, I touch upon it in the book, um, the first meeting that I was present for between um, then-Democratic uh, challenger, um, uh, Senator Barack Obama, and head of the opposition, Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, this was the first official meeting that the two of them had, uh, which took place at, a, at the King David Hotel in Jerusalem just a few months before uh, the U.S. election and probably about five or six months before the Israeli election. And from that first meeting, it was evident that these are two very determined very smart, very charismatic individuals, and the hope was that they would find common ground when it came to policy, when it came to the future of Israel and the future of the Middle East. It didn't take long, um, once they were both in office, to realize that that wasn't the case. And while they're both extremely talented individuals, they went toe-to-toe for the eight years of the Obama presidency in defining the future of the Middle East. And ultimately, uh, you know, arguments could be made as to whose vision um, was proven to be correct and who was less familiar and and, uh, pretty much failed in in implementing a vision that would bring change to the region. Obama didn't really have a whole lot of foreign policy experience when he was elected. 
and won the Nobel Peace Prize kind of bizarrely early on. What was his vision, and how was it articulated, and how did that come in conflict with Netanyahu? If you recall, uh, his first uh, venture into the Middle East was a speech given at a university in Cairo. Cairo, yeah, I do. Yeah, and firstly, there was a there was a message within that. At least that was what the Israeli public felt. The fact that his first foreign trip and his first policy statements on the Middle East not only would not be made in Israel, but he didn't even come to Israel on that visit. Meaning, if you're looking to create a sense of balance, at the very least, you, you know, you stop in the Arab world and then you come to Israel, and that was the way it was perceived. His attempt was to extend a hand. His vision was to extend a hand to the Arab world, to the Muslim world, and try to reconnect and re-engage with parts of that world that felt distant and slighted from the United States and from the Western world. Netanyahu, and I would say that Israel, for that matter, saw things very differently. We didn't see Iran as a potential friend or ally that you could deal with rather threat not just to Israel, but to the region and to world peace. When Obama uh, went to the, you know, to Egypt, and subsequently Egypt goes through its own civil unrest and the Muslim Brotherhood rise to power, Obama continues to embrace that change and that that new leadership. And the Muslim Brotherhood is nothing more than an extension or actually the parents of the Hamas movement. And we saw this in different areas around the Middle East where there was a certain naivete from Israel's perspective, from Netanyahu's perspective, as to what the true intentions of our regional neighbors are, and therefore what policy goals we should be setting. Netanyahu's policy was all about stopping the Iranian march towards nuclear weapons and towards destabilizing the Middle East, which he believed would bring about regional peace as many of the Sunni Arab nations felt similarly as far as Iran being the true threat. Obama, on the other hand, continued to believe and feel that if we just try a little bit harder, whether it be the Palestinians, whether it be Iran, whether it be some of the other neighbors in the region, we could bring to a better, uh, better results. The challenge of Gaza, which, I mean, in each subsequent incursion, war, however you want to call it, Israeli military capacity has been much greater, but... Hamas has gotten tougher. This has now been an ongoing experience, right, for really almost since the end of the Hamas-Fatah fight in Gaza after Sharon pulled out. This has been an open wound, really, for a large degree. And so a few rockets get, or a fair number of rockets get shot at Stay Road or even at Beersheba. Israel bombs a little bit, and then it goes back to some in-between stage. The conflict that you write about, the 2014 situation, tell us what kind of precipitated it? Well, it started, you know, again, when you look at some of the similarities, it started with the abduction, with the kidnapping of three high school boys that were on their way back from school for the weekend and uh, kidnapped by Hamas terrorists in Judea, right. um, not not far from the city of uh, Hebron. I, I was actually in Israel when that happened. It was just shocking. Yeah, I remember it well. Yeah, I mean, it was shocking. And I guess another similarity is that how it brought the nation together, brought the country together. And for the next 
you know, few weeks, Israel launched uh, an operation called My Brother's Keeper, which is one of the reasons for the name of the book, in searching uh, and with the hope that, you know, returning the three kidnapped boys. As part of that operation, Israel arrested many of the Hamas activists, terrorists in the West Bank. And as that started to snowball, Hamas from Gaza began shooting rockets. When that hit a crescendo, Israel began to respond and led the way for Operation Cast Lead, which was the operation, the military operation inside Gaza. You were on the inside. Tell us what the pressure was like from the U.S. at that point. So once again, I mean, it, it was a very different reality than the, what we're seeing today. I, I will say that the people of Israel have been very pleasantly and gratefully surprised with with the tremendous support we've gotten from the Biden administration throughout the current war. It's extraordinary, actually. It's it's fascinating that people don't realize just how much support has come. Yeah, no, it is. I, I really believe it's it's unprecedented as far as the unwavering and continuous support that we've gotten from from the current president. 2014 was very very different. Before we entered the operation in 2014, we had already begun to clash quite openly with the United States. There was an attempt for years to make progress on the Palestinian uh, peace front. That ended abruptly when the Palestinians, and I say this you know, sarcastically for a change, decided that they could not commit to uh, taking a step forward uh, in John Kerry's attempt to launch what he called uh, a framework negotiation. So that led to tensions between Israel and the United States. And at the same time, uh, the United States was secretly and then more openly negotiating with Iran on a deal that would allow them to continue to pursue, to a certain degree, their, their nuclear program. So the uh, suspicion and the tension between the two countries was quite significant at that time. And when we were drawn into the battles in Gaza, we, Israel, found ourselves in a position where we did not know if the United States was going to have our backs. There were multiple events, and I described them in the book, where the international media, which we all know is not very fond of Israel, uh, to say the very least, just repeated and echoed uh, falsehoods that the terrorist regime was putting out there. And in, in a number of instances, it led to a very, I would say, quick response from, you know, from the U.S. and from the White House, questioning Israel's uh, actions questioning Israel's, the care that Israel takes in protecting Palestinian civilians, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There were tensions around um, rearming Israel and replenishing some of the supplies. And there were, there were even tensions around some of the UN bodies, you know, some of the UN uh, commissions that were formed and debates that took place within various international bodies. And uh, we at the time, we're not confident that the United States was going to um, protect Israel within those uh, institutions. Those are some of the challenges that we faced as we were trying to deal with this terrible terrorist threat and with our soldiers fighting in the streets of Gaza. 
Netanyahu has been in power a long time. You worked, obviously, extremely closely with him. Somehow he always emerges and ends up back in the prime ministership. After all this is done, if you were to predict, what do you think will happen? I think that this is a very different animal. You know, the, the gravity of what took place on October 7th, the tremendous, you know, scar that the people of Israel are feeling now and will be left with for, for a long time to come, um, has put much of the public in a place where they want to see new leadership. And new leadership is not, when I say it, I'm not referring just to Netanyahu. There's a very strong feeling of we need a change. We need a change at the top of the military leadership. We need a change at the top of the political pyramid as well. Well, and, and some some of the security leadership has already changed, and I expect will continue to change. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's no question that the day after most of the military leadership and and some of the other uh, intelligence organizations in Israel will see their leadership uh, resign and go home. And I think that there's a majority of Israelis who think that the political leadership deserves the same fate. I think that, again, just because of the, 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 the significance of what happened on October 7th, it's not enough to say I'm sorry and try to continue down the same path. This was a huge blunder, not only tactically, there was a strategic and definitive policy that uh, had reigned here for a very long time, like you said, since Hamas took over in 2007, and the leadership in Israel that allowed for that to happen and that supported and, and implemented and developed this policy most likely cannot be the same leadership that takes us forward into, you know, the post-October 7th era. I, I want to thank Ari Harrow for a great visit here on Two Jewish. The book, utterly fascinating. My brother's keeper, Netanyahu Obama in the Year of Terror and Conflict that Changed the Middle East Forever. Where can people go to find out more about you, to find out more about the book? You can go to Amazon and type in the name of the book, My Brother's Keeper, with the, with the rest of it, and Ari Harrow. There's one R in Harrow. And, <laughs> um, and you can also uh, find it at, through the publishers at Post Hill. And um, I am working on putting together my personal website. So hopefully within the coming weeks, you'll be able to find more, find out more about me and about the book at ariharrow.com. Uh, as we say in my business, God willing. Thank you so much. When we come back on To Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest, get a final musical play out. Thanks for being here with us this morning on To Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week when our guest will be Dr. Joel Hoffman, a scholar, author, translator, speaking on good and evil in the ancient texts and the challenge of translating the Bible into English. Join us at Congregation Beit Simcha every Friday night for services in Oneg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning, too. 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush, live in person and on our Facebook page. Our play out today comes from Israeli singer Boaz Sharabi. It's the classic Mizrahi song, Halevai. May it all be better soon, please God. My friends, may you have a Shavua Tov, a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of justice and peace. Halevai, <laughs> 
Sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.